Well, good morning, everybody. I'm feeling more Canadian by the day, although the accent hasn't changed. <laughs> it's great to have been with you for these past uh, almost three weeks now and uh, to get to talk to many of you and to enjoy what God is doing and uh, to feel the sense that God is with you. I've really felt that and uh, to be in this amazing building is incredible. To see the work that's been going on out there and see action into the community, that's really incredible. And Rosie and I are looking forward to the next 10 days or so when we'll be with you. And then flying back to England for two weeks or three weeks, then two weeks in Scotland in ministry there in uh, Edinburgh, and then back for a couple more weeks, then off to Romania, where we're doing a big citywide um, conference there in the city of Brazov. So uh, we may look old, but we're not retired. Well, I may. Rosie doesn't look old, of course. Um, but uh, it's great to be serving God in the kingdom. Now, if you were with us last week, we were looking at the story of Nehemiah from the perspective of it giving us a prophetic understanding of how God wants to build his church. Now, there are all sorts of Christian organizations, parachurch situations, counseling programs, all sorts of things you can find on YouTube and the internet that are an expression of Christianity, even charismatic Christianity. But there is no other plan in the heart of God other than to build the church. The church is uppermost in God's heart and it's been like that right through the Old Testament with the people of Israel being a type of the church and a forerunner of the church. But it is, as the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the new Israel was born. And we are now the people of God. We are God's choice for reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel. And just as we were worshipping this, this morning, I just felt like the word revival going round and round and round in my head. Now, I'm not going to preach on revival as such, but I believe that the key to the gospel of the kingdom reaching the ends of the earth is that strong churches are built, flooded with the power of the Holy Spirit and affecting the communities in which they live and seeing revival. Now, I just want to say something very important about God's overall strategic plan. There are some Christians who believe that there is a worldwide outpouring that is going to be so great that in a sense the world will be Christianized. So that might be one group over here. There's another group over here who 
they feel that they're reading scripture and it's got, darkness is going to cover the earth and there's going to be a great falling away and then Jesus is going to come back for a remnant and uh, it will all be dark and dismal. Now I want to tell you that actually both things are true. Isaiah says, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the peoples. But then he says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. And so we live with this tension that in a fallen, sinful world where there are all sorts of manifestations of evil, social breakdown, wars, rumors of wars, political upheaval, crazy laws being passed in, in the Western world, all, all of that, and we can nod our heads and say, yeah, the world is going down and it's getting worse and worse. But Isaiah says, arise and shine for your light has come. And I believe that the end time church that God is building is going to be a glorious church, a powerful church, a church flooded with the Spirit that will bring light into that darkness. So we hold those two truths in tension. God is building his church and the church that Jesus builds is the church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And I believe in a triumphant, victorious church and Jesus will come back for it. Amen? So, the whole process of building the church is important. Now, last week, we looked at the story of Nehemiah and we saw that the walls had been broken down. And uh, Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in what was Babylon, comes back to Jerusalem because the reputation had got to him that the walls had been broken, and he was devastated by this fact. Now, as we saw last week, the reason why the children of Israel had been 70 years in captivity and in exile was because over a large number of years, there had been continual backsliding, continual disobedience to God, and in the end, God brought his judgment. Now, how many of you believe God loves you unconditionally? Well, that, that's good. How many of you believe that the blessings of God and him pouring out his Spirit on us is conditional? It is. We see it modeled in the Old Testament. God is not just sitting there saying, oh, I'll just give them a bit of blessing because I'm full of grace. No, God has revealed in his word how we should build the church. We build according to the pattern and their various principles and uh, there, there's the life of the Spirit that enlivens those principles and we build the New Testament church according to the pattern. And one significant thing that God has restored 
in our generation, in, in my generation, is that God has restored the ministries of the apostle and the prophet and the church is to be built on the foundation of the apostolic and prophetic. Now that's why churches like ours exist because some 60, 50 years or so ago the church woke up to the fact that prophets and apostles were not just ministries in the Bible but God was activating those ministries and in Ephesians chapter 4 we read that the risen Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers in order that the church might come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Now the story of Nehemiah and the building of the walls is an illustration of that truth. It's an illustration of apostolic and prophetic ministry coming together because Nehemiah is in a sense the kind of prophetic apostolic kind of guy who sees it, inspires the people, but there is another Old Testament book writer who is also in the frame and contemporary, and his name is Ezra. So we're going to pick up the story of the walls being rebuilt in Nehemiah and chapter 8. And we saw last week that God is looking for a people who are consecrated. Nehemiah said, arise and build. And the people said, we will arise and build. And they got that amazing wall built in just 55 days. Without any JCBs and great construction tools that we have today, it was hands, trowels, building. And they did it. Now God is looking for a willing, consecrated people. And we looked at that, we put the microscope on that. And if you didn't hear last week's message, I would encourage you to listen to it. And we also saw that they were to be a people of the word. Now, I'm going to say a little bit more about that and then develop that theme and talk about being a people of the Spirit. So, the wall is built, it's gone up, and then Nehemiah calls the whole nation together and he gets Ezra to read the word. So I'm going to read what it says. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. That's a significant place. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. So I've got about half an hour to preach. This was a long preach. Daybreak until noon. 
in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Now let me say this. The preaching of God's word takes absolute priority. Now there is no tension between worship, the worship time, and the preaching. Because worship should be full of the word. And I'm on a crusade at the moment to get worship leaders singing truth, singing scripture. We need to recover in the worship scene singing the Bible. Paraphrased maybe and po poetically put together, but we need that. But the preaching of the word, the expounding of God's word, is an essential building block in getting purposes of God. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. You can stay seated. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! I love it when people say Amen when I'm preaching, so feel free. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The word, when it's in us, produces worship. The Levites, and I won't read the list of names because I can't pronounce them, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. I'm just going to jump down. Nehemiah said, now, go and enjoy choice food. I love this. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Just a little comment about the joy of the Lord is your strength there. In the Hebrew language, if they want to emphasize something, they say it twice or even three times. That's why in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy, he's holy, holy. And he's not just holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. That's real holiness. Now, when it comes to joy here in the Hebrews, it's the joy, joy of the Lord is your strength. So let me encourage you to be filled with joy. So what happens next is that Ezra and Nehemiah, after the expounding of the law, they realized that the reason that they'd been in exile was that over a number of years, centuries even, the children of Israel had drifted away from the law that had been given to Moses. Now, as New Testament Christians, we know that we are not under law, but we are under grace. So we cannot please God by doing things that are legally right. That is not how we please God. Now, I think we should do things that are legally right, of course. But the grace of God writes the law of God into our hearts. So there is an inner compulsion to be obedient to God. And that's what the tension between grace and law 
is all about. So, there is a lot of misunderstanding amongst Christians about Leviticus and the Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, it would seem that Ezra was reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there are three types of law in the Old Testament. There is God's moral law, which is to do with our behavior, and it is to do with the way we relate with God by obeying him and being like him. And the root of that law is that we love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is then the ceremonial law where we get through Leviticus and into Deuteronomy as well, laws which are to do with the priesthood, how they should dress, how they should present the sacrifice. Now it was the ceremonial law that actually engaged people with God so that when they broke the moral law, they had a means of forgiveness by through the priesthood, the sacrifice of animals, blood being shed. And then there were the social laws about how they behaved with one another. Now, we need to understand that God's moral law revealed in the Old Testament, which reveals his holiness, has not changed. Very, very important. God is holy. And so the moral principles behind the revelation of the law in the book of Deuteronomy are the laws that are imprinted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and lived out by grace. So it's not that we try hard not to tell lies. It's not that we try hard not to commit adultery. It's not by laws that we do those things and screw ourselves up and try and make ourselves obedient to God. No, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free so that we enjoy living in holiness because we want to, because God's in us. There is a propulsion within our spirit that says, God, I love you. Now, when I was growing up, if my dad punished me, it hurt me because I'd hurt him. And so, when it comes to God's judgment upon us, which does happen from time to time, God brings discipline into our lives to bring us back to living according to the moral law that God has given us. But we don't screw ourselves up to do that. The Spirit of God gives us the desire for holiness. Now, the interesting thing is that what happens next in this story is that Nehemiah and Ezra see in the law that there was a ceremony that they had neglected. And the ceremony was the Feast 
of booths, as it's sometimes called. In Nehemiah, it's called the Feast of Booths. But it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm just going to say one more thing about the law before we, we look at that. In the book of Deuteronomy, God's moral law has five themes. Now, these themes apply to humanity and its sinfulness. The first is they were to have nothing to do with the occult. So they were not to, uh, not to be involved in any kind of false spirituality. They were to not turn to idolatry. There was to be no worship of other gods. They were to be sexually pure. They were also to have good family relationships. And fifthly, they were to care for the social fabric of the people that they were with and look after immigrants, the socially disenfranchised. They were not to exploit one another. Now, if you read the book of Deuteronomy from those five perspectives, they are all a revelation of the holiness of God. And that identifies the sinful nature that we have, which Jesus came to redeem. I hope that makes sense to you because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the laws of God. But it was in the Old Testament, it was through the priesthood that they got forgiven from those laws. They kept breaking them. And by the time we get to the exile, they've broken them to such an extent that God said, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to exile you. And so we're out of the exile now and we are restoring what has been broken, what has been lost. So they reinstitute the Feast of Tabernacles. Now it's interesting that Nehemiah says to the people that God's good spirit has led you this far and made provision for you. So let's just focus on the Feast of Tabernacles. What is that all about? Well, we have the prophetic fulfillment of this passage in John chapter 7. There was a week in the life of Jesus when the people in Jerusalem were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of the time that the children of Israel were going through the wilderness and they were living in tents. They were not in their permanent homes. They lived in and God provided for them. He provided manna, he provided water for them and his presence was there with them. And so this feast is established to remind the people of that era. So this is what Ezra and Nehemiah are restoring. That goes right the way through Jewish history and Jewish people still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today. Unfortunately, they leave Jesus out of it, but that's a, an, another story. So Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles and people are celebrating. Now we come to the last day and the Bible says in John 7, it's the last day, the great day of the feast. 
Now, although this was a time of great celebration, on the last day of the feast, it was a particular day when the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a huge water pot and he would fill it up and he would carry it up a very steep path. I've actually walked up that path and it is quite steep. Up to the temple, up to the water gate. Now, if you remember in the reading, this is where Nehemiah and Ezra were reading the law. It was at the water gate. So, the high priest would take this pitcher of water and go in, up, the, uh, up the path through the water gate into the temple and he would pour the water over the altar. Now, it was a symbol, a prophetic symbol of God's blessing, of harvest, of fruitfulness, of abundance. And it was a looking back in thankfulness and a looking forward in expectation. Now, the different aspect of this feast was that although it was a time of great celebration, during this solemn thing that the high priest did, the people, and it would be thousands of them, would line the street going up to the water gate. Mums, dads, kids, families, they'd all be there. And when the high priest took the pot from the pool of Siloam, it would be done in total silence. Nobody would breathe a word. It was an awesome day. And that's why the Bible calls it on the last day, the great day, the solemn day. Now, in the midst of that silence, this apparent crazy guy gets up and shouts, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, hi folks, no, this is not the way now. Look at me. I'm the fulfillment of what this priest is doing. Jesus could have been arrested and killed just for doing that. So Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now John commenting on that said that Jesus was talking about the Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he makes that, that comment. So let's just unpack this a bit. So Jesus is establishing new covenant life. No longer the Feast of Tabernacles. It's irrelevant now. Come to me. Come to me and drink. 
But the Spirit had not yet been given because something had to happen. Jesus had to be glorified. Now, what is the glorification of Jesus? Well, the glorification of Jesus is really the sum total of all the events surrounding Easter. From the Garden of Gethsemane, to Calvary, to the resurrection morning, to the ascension. But the focal point of the glorification of Jesus, and Penny so brilliantly showed us that this morning, it's when Jesus went to the cross. The cross is absolutely pivotal. And when Jesus cried, Tetelestai, it is finished, what he is saying is that all the sins of the world, all the disjointedness of creation, all the wars, the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the political breakdowns, all the strife, all the inner angst, all the mental health issues, all the anxieties, all the, all the sin of the human race, all the child abuse, the divorce, everything that causes the human race pain, I am taking to the cross to defeat the one who's caused all that mess, Satan. And Jesus, in that moment of shouting, Tetelestai, is saying, you can be free. I will forgive you. I will deliver you from the power of that. And as Jesus struggled for breath, he grappled with Satan, with demonic powers, with every evil thing. But then in that moment of Tetelestai, he holds up in his hands all of those evil powers and says, I'm victor over you. You are crushed beneath my feet. It is finished. Hallelujah. Woo! So, if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with issues, if you're struggling with despair, if you've made a mess of your life, if you don't know where you're going in life, what direction to take, Jesus has died on the cross. The cross is the pivotal moment of his glorification. Not the resurrection, the cross. The resurrection shows that the cross happened. Hallelujah. Now, this is interesting. For the next few weeks, Jesus has risen again from the dead. He's with them. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And 
the disciples are looking at him. He's gone. And uh, just before he's about to go, they ask Jesus a question. Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Now, they, were still, they still didn't quite get it. They were still thinking politically. You know, Jesus had done all that. He'd risen from the dead. Here, here he was. Is this the time? And Jesus says, no. It's not about that. It's the wrong question. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Jesus is glorified and now they are going to continue doing what Jesus did. Now they didn't quite understand what that would look like but on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit, you know the story, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and they are filled and they go out and preach the gospel. Now Peter, preaching on that day, when he starts getting questioned, what's going on? What's all this about? What's all the commotion about? He says this. He says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, he has sent forth this, which you both see and hear. In other words, Jesus is now glorified. He's ascended. He's gone to his Father's throne. And as Psalm 24 puts it, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. What's that psalm about? It's about Jesus' ascension. That's what it's about. Jesus is the only one who has never lifted up his soul to vanity, never sworn deceitfully. The sinless, perfect Son of God. He shall ascend to the hill of the Lord. And he did. And that's why the psalmist says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. And when Jesus, the King of glory, in his triumphant ascension, presents himself to the Father, the Father says, Well done, Son. You did it. We did it. Salvation's been accomplished. The Father anoints him with the coronation oil. The oil spills down onto some guys in an upper room. They start speaking in tongues, praising God, going out into the streets and preaching the gospel. And 3,000 get saved. And that's why Peter can say, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, he has sent forth this, which you both see and hear. And we are in the wake of that. As a church, we are in the wake of what happened on the day of Pentecost. So, here's my question for you this morning. First of all, do you really know that you're born again? Do you really know that you're born again? You know, born again people... Don't get anxious, don't get critical, don't tell lies, they love one another. Hello? 
What does the Bible say? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, goodness, self-control. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not preaching sinless perfection here. We're humans, and sometimes we blow it. But, you know, now the Spirit's come. There are what I call the crisis moments of the Spirit. Okay, Before you were a Christian, the Spirit was working in your life. You could not become a Christian without, first of all, God waking you up and bringing revelation to you. You can't become a Christian by choosing to become a one, become one. You know that, that chorus that's been popular recently, I have decided to follow Jesus. No, you didn't. The Spirit, God, decided that you were going to follow him. He works in your heart to draw you to Jesus. Yes, we have a will, and there comes a point where, after conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, you know, the great Spurgeon said, a strong conviction leads to a strong conversion. And so, when the Spirit comes and wakes us up, it's like the alarm goes, you know, you're dead asleep. The alarm goes off, and you want to kind of stop it. I want to sleep on. But no, the alarm keeps going. God works and brings you to faith and repentance. Now, it's a great mystery. Of course, the human will is involved. So, in a sense, I'm being a bit facetious. Yes, we do make a decision to follow. But that decision is based on what God has done. And we are born of the Spirit. We have the DNA of Jesus in us. That's amazing. We have God's DNA in us. We are made like Christ. We are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. And so we are Jesus on the earth. We are Jesus in the workplace. Jesus in the schoolroom. Jesus with our neighbours. And Rosie and I try to live like that, to show the love of Jesus to our neighbours. Because we have his spirit. We are no longer merely human. We have his presence. Another crisis experience of the Holy Spirit is that we can be baptised in, immersed in, flooded with the Holy Spirit. Now sometimes that does happen at conversion, but more often than not, I've found that there needs to be a, a time of seeking after God and just coming and receiving. I was, uh, in, in my teens, I was an evangelist with the Salvation Army. I could preach the gospel. I learned actually to preach in the open air, and you can probably tell that. Um, I, and and it, I was passionate about the gospel. But nobody ever responded to an appeal. And I began to look at some books about the Holy Spirit and I saw people like Spurgeon and Booth and Wesley and Moody and Whitfield all had that encounter of being baptised in the Spirit and so I began to seek God for the baptism in the Spirit and in those days you would drive miles to go to any meeting where the Holy Spirit was going to be mentioned it wasn't like it is today where we sing songs about the Holy Spirit all the time. It wasn't like that then. And so one Thursday afternoon, I was baptised in the Spirit. The next time I preached, made an altar call, 20 people responded. Same word, 
same content, but now anointed with the Spirit. And there is a difference. When you are baptized in the Spirit, you will overflow with worship. It's a gateway into the supernatural. It confirms your sonship and your identity. It gives you the opportunity not to be in any situation where the devil has the upper hand. I could tell you story after story. What I would say is, make sure that you are flooded with the Spirit. Now, I just want to say this sermon's gone in a different direction from what's in here, and it came after Penny's prophecy. But I've shared my, shared my heart with you. So we'll have to perhaps go back to this next week. <laughs> so I want us to have an opportunity this morning to just, as the worship team, can you come up, please? We, we, we are going to open up our hearts. If you're baptised in the Spirit, great. If you're not baptised in the Spirit, you can be this morning. And I'm just going to facilitate it like this. I'm not going to bring people forward. Um, it would be probably well over 30 years ago, I was leading worship at a very big Christian event in England, 5,000 people there. But it was an evangelical event and definitely not charismatic. And the worship leaders had been told, definitely no tongues, definitely no prophecy, definitely nothing charismatic. So a worship leader you may have heard of, Graham Kendrick, a, a songwriter, and I were leading worship. And a guy got up and preached, and he preached a barnstorming sermon on the baptism in the Spirit. I thought, oh, he's going to be in trouble. And then he gets the worship band up, like these guys have come up now, and he actually makes an appeal for people to come forward for the baptism in the Spirit. Hundreds came forward. And I think, we're going to get the sack. <laughs> Hundreds came forward. So uh, Gra Graham was kind of leading, and I was playing guitar and uh, co-leading with him. Graham looked at me, and this is on the stage. This is the kind of thing that goes on with worship leaders on the stage, little whispers. So Graham said to me, nothing's happened, does it? Because they weren't prayed over. They'd just come forward. Graham said, nothing's happened, does it? I said, no, it hasn't. I said, what are we going to do? And Graham said, um, I think we should sing in tongues. I said, yeah, so do I. So Graham said, well, who's going to start it? I said, not me. I'm the new boy. So we start to sing in tongues and hundreds of people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, that event is now charismatic. From then onwards, it, it became more and more charismatic. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to get us to stand. I just want you to open your hands to, to God. We're not going to sing a melody or anything. The band are just going to play a chord. I just want you to start to sing in a language. And as you do that, if you've never done that before, just ask God to help you. You may find for the first time that the Spirit will come upon you. So it's... Mandala valandu de vasu, la valandu de vasu. 
Lord, open our lips, open our mouths. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in this room. Come and flood our hearts. Come and fill us now. We will open our mouths and sing your praise, Lord. Ki alabarando de vasolava, ki alabarando de vasando de vasando de vasu, ki alabarando de vasu, ki alabasanda de vasalvalando, mundo la vala. Mondarabusando, chi alavasando rabasando, chi alavasalavalia, chi alavalando sandalava, molaborava laborianda, chi alavalando rabasso. Holy Spirit, come, Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here this morning. I pray that Christ Central Fredericton will be a church that is renowned for being flooded with your Spirit. Lord, let the song of the Lord arise. I pray for this worship team and... The, the, the rest in the, in the worship team who are not here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will just keep flooding them, help them to lead this great church in the song of the Lord. I pray for that anointing. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I know that the time has gone and you've got kids and I fully get that. I fully understand that. I'm just going to ask the band to lead us in a song. But what I'm going to say is please come tonight to the prayer meeting and we'll continue a, a bit more. Pray for people and uh, we'll just wait on God. And I, I'd like us to really pray for revival tonight, for a move of God's spirit. So the prayer meeting's at half past seven. So please come and join us and we can take this further. As we pray for God to come, change the nation, do what he wants to do, but for us to be personally filled. God bless you.